welcome to the Greener Way podcast, a show about people, planet, and purpose, and how investors and corporate leaders push forward in a complex world. On this episode of The Greener Way, we're pulling back the sustainably sourced, ethically manufactured curtain on our newsroom. Joining us is Rosemary Petrus, senior journalist at FS Sustainability, to chat about what's going on in the sustainability headlines. Rose, welcome to the podcast. Please tell us who you are and what makes you so passionate about sustainability. Hi, Rachel. Well, the idea of environmental stewardship was really instilled in me in a very young age. I grew up in rural Tasmania, which is a really special and beautiful place. And being surrounded by that nature, it really, I guess, taught me a lot. My childhood home was nearly burned down in a bushfire. So I really grew up understanding the beauty, but also the danger, the the power of nature. I think that's something a lot of um, investors in, realized um, in a big way in 2019, 2020, doing the bushfires. I know for me, smelling smoke every day sort of really put it front and center that climate change is something that's here for all of us. So you yeah. had a sneak preview of that as a child. Yeah. And um, I think often like living in the city now, living in the city, you can feel like you're quite separate from nature. Like it's not really as in your face as it like until the smoke arrives at your door so to speak Mm, um very true yeah so but I think kind of it's important to recognize that we are actually part of an ecosystem and we're dependent on it just like it is dependent on us also coming from a scientific family who worked in the environment sector and in social work I grew up with a very strong sense of the importance of both the E and the S in ESG and understanding that there's no environmental movement without equity and inclusion. And to take it's important to take into account that these environmental harms are really inequitably distributed and many marginalised groups, especially Indigenous peoples and emerging economies, are far more vulnerable to the effects of climate change and natural hazards, but also recognising that Indigenous peoples hold unique knowledge systems and sustainable land management practices and protect 80% of biodiversity left in this world. So it's really important to recognise that and respect those cultures and communities that are really at risk and we need to understand that we have a lot to learn from them. This is such an important topic, Rosemary, um, particularly, you know, with the context of we're building through the rest of the year to the referendum on Indigenous voice in the Constitution. And I have a, I have a feeling that this is going to permeate all of our coverage at FS Sustainability, um, you know, sort of in this political context, but then thereafter as well. So it's it's really interesting for you to bring that into this conversation. Mm-hmm. Coincidence as well, uh, My both my parents are social workers and, and rehab counselors as well. So we have a bit of that background similarity between the two of us as well. 
I really love the, that you're so intersectional about that E and that S. And that certainly comes through to me. Um, you've hit the ground running in terms of stories and articles that you've written here at FS Sustainability. And you really do bring that intersectionality to the conversation, which I always appreciate. So um, let's talk a little bit about the big stories we've covered this week. Um, for me, um, it was the research by a group of academics, including the University of New South Wales, um, that found that over 90 businesses in Australia believe uh, say that they want more regulation when it comes to the Modern Slavery Act, which you know, which seems incongruous. You never hear from the business community that they want more regulation and more uh, penalties for not reporting correctly on modern slavery. How about for you? Um, what have you been covering this week and what stood out for you? This week, I published a story called The Wild West of Blue Investing, and I found it really interesting. I know it has a bit of a funny title, but <laughs> basically this was based off a talk at the Blue Solutions Summit held during the Ocean Lovers Festival in Sydney. So in the ESG world, we talk a lot about investing in land-based projects. So that would be, for example, reforestation projects, mm -hmm. but we don't really talk a lot about sea-based projects. And the blue economy means economic activities that are related to or dependent on the ocean. So mm. one statistic that really shocked me was that for every dollar spent in the blue economy, 97 cents is spent on something that might be harming the ocean while only three cents is spent fixing it. So how does that work out? How does it, can you provide any sort of depth on that statistic? Is it, um, you know, like fisheries and sort of removal? I mean, that's, that's, that's shocking. There's a lot of harmful practices when it comes to economic activities that are dependent on the ocean. It could be, for example, the fishery industry is very um, harmful on marine life. It destroys the ecosystem in quite a profound way. And um, I saw some statistic, but I might be wrong because I'm just remembering off the top of my head that by 2050 um, most of the fish that we eat every day or every week or very commonly those are actually going to be extinct and that's because of overfishing. It's, it's a unique opportunity, though, for Australia being, you know, the island continent uh, that we are um, to play a leadership role, you know, in, in particularly in the region uh, when it comes to coming up with uh, water, you know, sort of ocean based solutions to climate change and biodiversity. Uh, so I look forward to seeing how you tackle that one in future. It's funny that you said that because the investment piece to understand about the blue economy is that it's going to be worth $100 trillion in the coming years. And Australia has the third largest ocean exclusive economic zone in the world. So that is a lot of opportunity for investors that are interested in finding a way to help the planet in a way that's profitable for them and for their businesses. So how can we contribute in a positive way? Some examples that they gave at this event were sailboat cargo ships, wind-powered, if you will, mm -hmm. um, robots mm -hmm. that clean and repair boat hulls underwater, which cuts out a lot of the toxic chemicals that they use, and also floating pho photovoltaics with seaweed dangling underneath. So projects like this are really important because they not only support marine biodiversity, but they also drive mm. sustainable economic growth in emerging economies and in marginalized communities. Mm. 
um, mm-hmm. particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and remote communities. I think that that's one definitely to to keep an eye on, uh, Rosemary, because um, you know, as you say, particularly when it comes to sort of the top end of the country and traditional ownership of of shallow waters, um, there's some really interesting traditional activities that I think could be turned into methodologies. I'm led to believe uh, for carbon crediting uh, with blue activity, which has that co benefit that you're talking about uh, in terms of impacting you know traditional owners of the land. Yeah. What are you going to be working on going forward, Rose? Give us a sneak peek of what's coming up in the coming weeks for you. So at the moment, I'm writing about solar panel stewardship schemes, which is really interesting. The Australian renewable energy sector is grappling with the dilemma of what to do with 80 million solar panels at the end of life. That is more than 100,000 tonnes that are due to be dismantled in Australia from 2035. So if you think about in the past um, couple of decades when solar has become more popular and accessible, all that solar that was installed over the past 10 to 20 years is going to soon come to end of life. And that is going to be a lot of waste if we can't find a circular solution for it. So in a perfect circular economy world, we would keep all those materials within use for as long as possible through recycling, so that waste can be minimised as much as possible. But at the moment, Australia has no national photo- photovoltaics recycling scheme. But it's something that the government and industry groups have been looking at. The problem is making that economically viable for a product like PV, which is made mm-hmm. from relatively inexpensive materials but with some rare elements. I've been speaking to some industry and researchers and different groups to find the solution, and our listeners will have to read my article when it's published to find out more. They absolutely will. And it's interesting because, you know, what is a risk now can also become um, a financial opportunity um, for companies that find that solution and then for investors that invest and scale those solutions into uh, into larger uh, companies. So we'll stay tuned for that. From my perspective, um, I've been thinking, Rose uh, Rosemary, about sort of the guarantees around carbon capture and storage. Um, The IPCC sixth report um, said that in in some way, shape or form, carbon sequestration is going to be necessary for us to uh, keep climate change contained at 1.5 or slightly above. If we're going to use carbon capture and storage as part of that solution, I I have a lot of questions as to um, who is responsible for making sure that the carbon that's sequestered, however that is, uh, that the carbon stays sequestered for uh, infinity years uh, to prevent uh, increased climate change for our grandchildren, great-grandchildren and beyond. Uh, So I've been talking with a lot of lawyers. Uh, I've been talking with a lot of regulators and we'll see what comes for that because nobody seems to have a clear answer at this point. Um, so to finish this one off, uh, Rosemary, I would like to steal a page from one of my very favorite podcasters, um, Alan Alda of the Clear and Vivid podcast. Um, he has fantastic scientists and experts on at the end of every podcast. He asks them fast questions uh, to get a quick response to provide a little bit more information. So, Rose, I'm going to hit you with these questions. Quick answers only. Um, what do you wish you really understood? That is a difficult question. I guess there's a lot that I don't really understand, like most people. I guess being in this space of, would you say, like climate journalism or environmental journalism, there is a lot of science that I don't really understand. And a lot of people ask me tricky questions 
But I guess our job as journalists is to be good at communicating what other people are experts on and give them a voice and a platform. So I don't need to be an expert. I just need to be able to clearly communicate what the experts are saying. Amen to that. How do you tell someone that they have their facts wrong? The first step, I think, in changing someone's mind is empathy. I think empathy and listening are really important. Um, A lot of the time when someone says something that's completely incorrect or against your values or completely factually wrong, your first reaction might be to feel angry or personally attacked or even to look down on them and dismiss them. But we can't really be dismissing ignorance because it's the most dangerous thing in our society today, I think. Um, There's a lot of fake news, a lot of conspiracy theories going around. So if you hear someone saying something that's not factual, your first reaction should be to stay calm and be respectful and try and lead them to realise that what they're saying doesn't really make sense without embarrassing them or talking down to them, just like creating that space for empathy and to create that safe space for a conversation to happen. How do you strike up a real genuine conversation, Rosemary? Well, that comes back again to empathy and being generally interested in other people and their perspectives. People love to talk about themselves a lot. So we all need to create that um, skill to actively listen to each other. And that's a skill not just for journalists to have, but for everyone to have, I think, and really listen to each other and understand each other's perspectives. Okay. And finally, uh, Rose, what's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? So I've been asked a lot if choosing to go into this area of like environmental journalism or climate journalism is a depressing job. People say, that sounds so depressing. I could never do that. And I think that kind of reaction is really common in society at the moment. Like, I think we often feel really down about the climate crisis or really despondent and feel like there's nothing that we can do as individuals to make any difference. And the news is constantly telling us really terrible things and scientists are trying to warn businesses and governments to change, but it seems like the needle is moving really slowly Mm. and it can be really overwhelming um, to even turn on the news. But I think it's really important to remember that if everyone thinks, oh, nothing I do can make a difference, then nothing will ever change. We need to, as a society, collectively hold onto that hope and make the changes that we can make today to move into a better future and have optimism that the more that we have these kinds of discussions, because if someone asks you, you know, oh, is that so, that's so depressing. It creates an opening to have that conversation with your friends, your family, your colleagues. And the more that we have that conversation, the more that other people will also make those changes and not just um, kick the can down the road to the next generation. 
yeah, these are critical years to make a difference. And I believe that if we can keep telling these stories um, as communication professionals, but also anyone listening to this podcast in their everyday life, um, we need to keep having these conversations and create that hope that we can um, galvanize those in power and everyone in society to make a difference. Excellent. Well, Rosemary Petras, Senior Journalist at FS Sustainability, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Greener Way podcast. If you like today's show, remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Any feedback? Contact us on podcast at fssustainability.com.au. I'm Rachel Allen Backus. The Greener Way podcast is a product of FS Sustainability, a show about people, the planet, and investing in our collective future. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. The Greener Way podcast gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by discussing numerous financial sustainable options and our featured guests. It is not intended as a substitute for professional, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of The Greener Way are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. FS Sustainability operates under an Australian Financial Service License and the exemption made available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect to any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the FS Sustainability website, fssustainability.com.au.